nice to be with you all. Rick and I, we, I think our favorite teasing is who's actually has authority over each other. Because Rick was ordained a priest like two minutes before me. Very significant two minutes, but I like to say, well, I'm from the dean, you know, the, the dean's church with the archdeacons, and so we have a lot of fun with that. We haven't had any opportunities to really have to hash that out in a meaningful way, which is probably for the best, because I would win. So, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for restoration. It's so lovely to be here and, and uh, get to um, preach from your word. I'm thankful for the gift of your word. I ask that you... Um, Give us uh, encouragement and strength and challenge. Um, just bless us today as we get to dive in more to this story in Matthew. In your name, amen. So if you are, whoop, first things first. If you're doing the drawing, drawing prompts, drawing during the sermon, we do this at Cross right now. It's a lot of fun. It's for kids, for adults too, if it helps you focus a little bit. Um, if there's something during, that, during this message, if you want to help be focused with, with drawing, um, consider doing that. My prompt today, it's kind of obvious. What else can you do for the gospel reading but the wise men? Draw some wise men. Draw more than three. It'll be more fun that way. Um, but get them visiting the new king. Make sure we see that this is Jesus the king they are visiting if you're thinking about drawing that. If you draw something else, I won't stop you. Um, that would be really hard because I can't tell what you're drawing. So anyway, so if you've noticed in your bulletin today, um, it is the second Sunday of Christmas. And if you're a little bit newer to Anglicanism or liturgical churches, maybe online, this is your first time uh, stumbling upon us in that way, you might be surprised by that. Um, it's actually the 10th day of Christmas today. Because for us, Christmas isn't just one day. It is actually 12 days of celebration. Now that means a lot of things. For one, I hope it means that you are still finding ways to celebrate. That when you go home uh, today and you're remembering Jesus Christ uh, became fully human like all of us and he's still God, as you're thinking about that, eat that extra cookie, make an extra special meal, read the Christmas story all over again. Um, think about if your Christmas has been maybe a little bland so far, be excited. It's the 10th day of Christmas. That means maids of milking, I think. So they're coming your way as well. Uh, but also it means that as I start my message today, it's still Christmas, so I can use a Christmas story and illustration, and I will feel no guilt in doing so. So, last year, actually this is confusing, 2019 December, so just a little over a year ago, uh, my son Ellis, he's my second child, he's four, at the, he was four at the time, um, he was going to this little two days a week uh, church-run preschool, really nice little place, and that preschool was just half a block down the street from an assisted living facility. This is 2019 again, so a few times a month they would get to go, and they'd get to go with their teachers, and they'd go over to the assisted living facility, and they would visit their grand friends. It's really, really sweet. They get to go play and have fun and bring joy to um, the people there who gave a lot of joy to these kids. And as they went over in December um, to visit, they were really surprised when they got there that Santa was there waiting for them. He was actually there every year. They just never remembered that. Um, but Ellis came home from this. He was there one other time, and he was so excited that year. He told Liz and I all about it. We still remember it this year and laugh about it because he was telling us that really was, I know that was the real Santa. You know, sometimes there are people who dress like Santa. This was the real one. So he said, well, Ellis, how do you know? What, what, what made him stand out? He gave me a candy cane, one of those nice little small ones. He had it for all of us. That was what it did for him. Well, Liz and I enjoyed that, but it turned out to be a lot more than just a simple moment for little Ellis. Um, he had met the real Santa, and that means we needed to do some changes in our house. You know, we hadn't talked a lot about Santa before this time, but 
he had candy from Santa, we needed to do some new things. So we did that year for the first time, leave out the cookies for Santa, carrots for his reindeer, some other things like that. But that wasn't the end of it. It was still fresh on his mind Christmas morning of that year. Um, he told us again that morning, after presents were done and everything, he came up to us again and said, I know that was the real Santa. I know more than ever that was Santa. So we're, oh, why? Uh, because that Santa gave me this, that little candy cane at Grand Friends, and in my stocking, I had a big candy cane. So it was like one was like a foreshadowing or promise of the other or something in his mind. But it was, just, it was even more rooted in his head, that candy cane. That was Santa in some way. Um, my wife and I loved that story. We love thinking about it still with, with how Ellis experienced and figured out this Santa moment. He recognized Santa, and it was the true Santa. And then he knew he had to respond in some way. It wasn't enough to just meet him and have fun. Now we had to do things differently because of this. Um, and actually, as we come to the gospel reading today in Matthew 2, we actually find a somewhat similar challenge for us. Now, not about Santa, of course, um, but as we look further at this reading today, we actually see we too are meant to recognize someone, but here we're meant to recognize the true king, the Messiah, and then we are being called to respond. So look with me at that reading now. Now, I know when we come to this story in particular, we start thinking about those wise men. You're drawing about them now. We wonder, how many were there? Where are they from? What was this star? And those are fine questions. We can't really answer them with any certainty. We can make educated guesses. So here goes. Probably more than three. Um, we think they come from Babylon or Persia. And there's a chance, it would make sense that that star would actually be a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. It happened three times in 7 BC. A lot of you realize it happened this year. It hasn't happened for like 700 years. But it was really special in 7 BC. It happened three times. Either way, Matthew doesn't actually include this story for all those details, or even for the wise men's sake. Um, it'd be fascinating to know, and I wonder how much he was thinking about them, but those details aren't ultimately his main concern. For Matthew, the story is all about Jesus, and it's about who he is. We are, of course, right near the beginning of Matthew's gospel. It's only chapter 2. This is the third story um, or teaching in the whole book at this point. And if we look back at Matthew chapter 1 of the first two teachings, we see there Matthew is starting his gospel by very clearly and in different ways showing, proclaiming that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel and all the world. He's saying that Jesus is the true king and that he's not simply a great man, that he is both God and man. And Matthew is keeping up this emphasis right in the story we have before us. So the wise men are here, but they're not here for themselves. They're here to point to Jesus, that Jesus is this true king. Though, as we get into the passage with this focus, as we follow it in, we actually need to first start with the other major character in the story, the king, Herod. This is Herod the Great, and he's called king in this story three times. So Matthew is expecting us at this point to consider Herod and his kingship, and then even compare him with the newly born Messiah, who is the real king. What kind of kingship should we be looking for? How do they act that out? So let's start thinking about Herod the Great. Historically, we know he reigned over Judea from about 37 to 4 BC. Um, he wasn't a native or biological Jew. He was Idumean. Um, but he'd become king over Judea because he had connections in Rome. He knew how to schmooze, and he was a friend of Caesar in some way. So he wasn't fully independent, but he was like a vassal client king from Rome. Anyway, we know he was fairly politically savvy with those who were in power over him. They seemed to like him. Uh, we know he liked to do great building projects. He built great cities. He built uh, the temple in Jerusalem, made it huge, took decades. 
We also know that Herod was a despot. He was paranoid about maintaining his absolute power. He was very cruel. He even had uh, secret police that would root out and uh, eliminate dissenters. We even know he killed members of his own family that he felt he couldn't trust anymore. That included his wife. So that's history. I do imagine, though, that's a bit on Matthew's mind as he comes to this part of the story, probably in his first listeners as well. But in chapter 2, we see a couple things as well we can hold on to as we're thinking about Herod or Jesus and who is king. The comparison begins fairly simple. First, we see Herod reigning in Jerusalem, in the palace. He's in the capital, the place of power. This is really no surprise. Even the wise men go to Jerusalem first because they think if there's going to be a king born, he'd be born in Jerusalem here. That's the place of power and authority. That's the special location where everyone should be. But then another thing about Herod we should think about. He's reigning in Jerusalem. He's in the trappings of power and everything looks right as king. Um, But then we also think about Herod's response to the wise men. When he hears that they are here looking for a new king, Herod's response is to be deeply troubled. He's alarmed. He's disturbed. The wise men are joyous over this news, but Herod is anything but. Maybe he's fearful or anxious. Probably he's angry. It's interesting. The passage says Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, perhaps the people of this city are alarmed in some ways about the news of the new king. To me, it seems a lot more likely they're alarmed because Herod is alarmed and troubled. What is Herod going to do now? How will he act They've already seen and known terrible things from him. It would make sense for them to be afraid at this point. And the story continues on from this passage into just the very next piece of the story. And we see fear was a very good response to what Herod is thinking. Because when Herod, um, he doesn't like the news of the new king, he tries to use the wise men to figure out who he is, that fails him. So instead, what he does is he just orders his men to go out to Bethlehem and the surrounding area and kill all the boys two and under. It's a small area. It may not have been many children, but it is a terrible act. So this is the brief glimpse we're given of Herod here, the one who claims to be the king, the king over the Jews. He has the trappings of power and wealth, and he clings to that, even through treachery and murder. Not even young children are safe if he feels threatened. And then we have Jesus. Jesus, who wasn't made the king, he is born as king. It's not something he earned. It wasn't something that was given to him by Caesar. As the wise men say here, he is born king of the Jews. He simply is the rightful king and the Messiah. And he isn't born in Jerusalem, in the palace, in the powerful places. He doesn't have wealthy parents, but he is still the one that the prophets foretold would come. He is the one who at his very birth, creation rejoiced and celebrated over with a star leading others to this king who had come. And while he is the true king of the Jews, which is all Herod actually pretended to be, Jesus was king of not Jews only. Even the wise men from foreign lands come to offer him the gifts that are fit for a king. They give nothing to Herod here. And they come even to worship him. So he is king of the Jews and also the whole world. And he's more than any human king. Even as a young child, he is worthy of worship and our greatest gifts. So Matthew's inviting us here. Seriously consider who is the true king What makes the real king and how does that work out around them? So we consider Herod and then Jesus. And we see here the obvious answer to these questions is Jesus is the true king. 
He is what the true king is. He will do what a true king does, even when that is very unexpected. And actually, a good discipline for all of us would be over the next maybe week or two, read through Matthew, pay attention to Jesus and ask, he's the true king. What does the true king do? What does it look like? What is his reign like? But as we come to this point and thinking, all right, so Jesus is the true king, Matthew still has a further question for us. This is, Jesus is the true king. We've been shown him. We can recognize him. But now, how do we respond to that? Matthew's story gives us several examples that we can consider here, maybe with ourselves. First, perhaps we respond to Jesus, the king, like Herod. Probably, we won't resort to treachery and murder, but we will look up, will, will we look upon this true king of kings and be troubled at his coming? Will we be afraid or anxious or angry? Will we resist Christ's kingship? I think for many of us, this is our starting place with Jesus. But even for us, we've, we, after we turn to Jesus, we accept him as Lord, we know his love and his forgiveness, this isn't just something that stays in the past. We can still slip into this type of response of resisting the rule of Jesus. Sometimes Jesus will ask things of us that we don't want to give him. Sometimes Jesus will interrupt our own plans or he will challenge our great desires. Often he will challenge our love or use of power. So how will we respond when he does challenge us? We often want to remain king or queen of our own space. Will we instead surrender to him again and again? Will we remember that all the gifts, the resources, people in our lives that we can cling so fiercely to really belong first to Jesus? Will we respond to his kingship by giving back to him everything that he has given to us? Throughout this last year, I've especially found new ways that I struggle with this. When it comes to all these challenges and new stresses and worries, these things tend to push me back to my safe place, which far too often my safe place is myself, my own power and control, my own efforts to solve these things. Honestly, parts of me don't want Jesus to be king. I'm content with relying on myself. I think that's because, I mean, it's so many reasons, but submitting to Jesus means patience and waiting. It means sometimes long periods of not really understanding. It means I may not ever fully understand what's going on. It means admitting I don't have control over my own life, which is something this year keeps demonstrating as well. So it can be a regular struggle, even for me in this, to submit to Christ as, as king or just to try to cling to my own power. Of course, when I'm honest with myself, the results of my kingship are often not much better than Herod's. So I really should be eager for Christ's reign in my life. But perhaps that's not a struggle for you. Then perhaps Matthew would present, well, there's maybe one other way we might struggle with the kingship of Christ. Maybe not like Herod, but maybe we would respond like the priests and the scribes do in this story. Their part in the story is very important. It's also very disappointing. The wise men come to Jerusalem. They are seeking the one born king, and he's not there. So Herod gathers the experts, the scribes and the priests, and says, where would this new baby be? be born? And they know their scriptures well. They know through the prophet Micah, that God promised the king to come would be born in Bethlehem. So they send the wise men out in the right direction to figure these things out. But even though these priests and scribes are experts in scripture, they know this passage and more. They spend their lives serving at God's temple, teaching his people the law. None of them go and seek the newborn king. They should be waiting for God to act, to redeem his people. They should be anticipating the Messiah and king, but they don't go with the wise men. They don't strike out on their own in search of the one that God has promised. They've heard the king is here and they do nothing. 
Now, maybe they aren't sure they should believe the pagan astrologers at this point, but really, would it have hurt them to go look into this more? They don't. Some are indifferent. They don't want to be bothered with it right now. Or maybe others are afraid. If I get excited about this, what might Herod do? Either way, they do not seek out the one who should be their king. They don't celebrate his coming. They don't fall down and worship before him. Do we respond to Christ our king like the priests and scribes? Do we hear the king has come and keep our heads down, hope it won't disrupt our lives too much? Or maybe we're afraid. We wonder what will following Jesus cost? This too can be an ongoing challenge. We will find ourselves in tough places, enforced into big decisions. And there are usually answers that are easier or more profitable than truly submitting to and following our king. But thankfully, Matthew hasn't just left us with kind of these negative examples here because we also get to see and enjoy the example of the wise men and their response to Jesus. The wise men come to Jesus from very far away, not just geographically, but also in terms of religion and status. They are pagan astrologers. They have no real place or connection to Israel. In the Greek text, they are called magi, which elsewhere in the New Testament, it means magicians. It's not a positive title. It's for people who do dark and misleading things, people who shouldn't be trusted. So it's really surprising here that they are celebrating and excited to find this new king. The physical distance they travel from, that matters too. Travel was not a light or easy thing at this time. It would have meant for them um, great cost in terms of money and also time. It would have probably taken months for them to get um, to Jerusalem. It's also a real risk to their safety. It was not an easy, safe task. But they had to come anyway. And even as they come, their first expectations for a king born into power and wealth are shattered. And they instead find a boy in a small town, in a small house, with average, poor parents. Even then, they still respond rightly to Jesus. They can still recognize this is the king. And they bow down and worship him. They offer him their best gifts. We can respond to Jesus like these wise men even more. We can rejoice and celebrate with the wise men, bowing in submission and worship of our true king and God. We are privileged even to be able to offer him um, whatever we can, whatever gifts we have, our talents, our resources, our bodies, our love. We give these to him in worship and service. But Matthew doesn't expect that our response to Jesus will come simply from this story. He wants us to take this recognition of the king and now carry it through the whole story of Jesus' life, his teachings, um, and then especially to consider him as king in his death. Matthew's actually even drawing our attention to Christ's death in this story. In verse 2, the wise men ask for the one born king of the Jews. It's a very important title, a way to talk about Jesus, but we won't see that title repeated again until the end of the story. Then it's during Jesus' trial and crucifixion, we see it said, repeated three times, always on the lips of Gentiles, like it began with the foreign wise men. First, Pilate, the governor, will ask Jesus during the trial, are you the king of the Jews? And then the soldiers, as they beat and mock Jesus, will cry out, hail, king of the Jews. And finally, as Jesus is dying on the cross, the charge against him was hung above his head and it read only, this is Jesus the king of the Jews. So Matthew means for us at his birth, the birth of Jesus and at his death to recognize the true king. We must recognize all that he has done for us, taking upon himself our flesh and blood 
dying horribly in our place, going before us through death, providing the way for forgiveness of our sins, and then that he rose to new life, opening the way for resurrection life for all who do recognize Jesus as King, Lord, and Savior. So our response can begin much like the wise men's, but it can go far beyond theirs. Our response includes resting in Christ's sure forgiveness and love. It includes a whole life of devotion at the king's feet. And it means looking ahead to an eternity spent in joyful celebration with him. So the king has come. May we always rejoice, worship, and serve him. Will you pray with me? Christ, we are so thankful that you have come. Increase in us the certainty of this in our faith. Stir in our hearts um, the depth of meaning of this. Get us excited again for you as our King and our Lord. Um, and help us to hold fast to you in all that we do um, to submit and surrender. And bless us uh, to, to love and serve you and proclaim you as King to others. Amen.